23. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 12. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the love for the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father, the son in whom he delights. You may all have a seat. Thank you, Ted. Let's um, come to the word. This morning, before we come to the word, let's come to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are, that you are a good and gracious Savior. We come to you as we hear the words of the wise man. We consider the words, Lord Jesus, that, that really come from you, that we have a Father who loves us and who is good and gracious and who has given us the greatest gift we could ever hope for. He has given us his words. And so we come to you this morning and we ask for your help that we would not lean on our own understanding. But that instead, Lord, we would trust you in all our ways. That we would treasure your steadfast love. That we would allow it to hang as jewelry or as a garment. That we would wear it and hang on to it and cling to it as our only hope. And that we would delight in your ways and enjoy the goodness of all that you are set apart and holy from this fallen and sinful world. And when it is necessary, Lord, that you do discipline us, as is mentioned in this text, that we would understand in the difficulty and hardship, however it might come, that you do so, Lord, not to abuse you don't do this in order to be capricious or fickle or to bully. But you do so as a loving father who sees children who need correction because they're wandering from the path. And out of love for us and out of a care for us from a father who is involved and is not absent, who desires that we might know and live the life of his word, you come in and Sometimes you nudge us with your rod and sometimes you give us a little harder push. 
depending on where we're at, but it is done out of love so that our paths might be made straight and so that we might come to the fellowship of your family and to the table of your house. Lord, that we might come not empty-handed, but that our hearts and lives would be filled with fruit that comes from your word and comes from your spirit and comes from above, that comes from the cross. And that we might give the first fruits of all that you've given us as a tribute and a celebration of your goodness and the goodness of your love in our lives. May that be true of us this morning, Lord, as we come to your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we began considering the God-breathed words of Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, where the Apostle Paul explains to the saints in Ephesus how Christ is their peacemaker and how his blood and his cross has drawn them near to God and near to one another. How Christ has done what they could never do for themselves, what no man could ever do. That beauty and that sweetness of drawing children close to a father who they were once separated or estranged from. By coming in between and addressing what divides and what separates, the sin and the pride And also, the wall of division that comes in between them, which is tied to the condemnation we have under the law. But as we started to examine the details of the Apostle Paul's explanation of really this wonderful and glorious truth, that Christ is our peace, and that His blood is what has drawn us near to God. At first glance, when we looked at it, there seemed to be a contradiction between the words of the Apostle Paul in verse 15 and the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that he spoke in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 15. Excuse me, Matthew 5, verse 17. In Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. But you'll recall in Ephesians 2, 14 through 15, the Apostle Paul, referring to the peace that Christ has made, says that Christ has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And this raised the question last week, which I did not answer, in case you were wondering, Raised the question last week, how exactly are we to understand this apparent contradiction in our English translations, whether you have the ESV or the NASB or the King James Version? And how are we supposed to rightly understand these verses? And by extension, how are we to rightly understand the hard parts of our, our Bible, of which, quite frankly, if we're going to be honest as believers and Christians, there are many. There are many awkward parts, many uncomfortable parts, many parts that are hard to understand. Well, the Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter 3.16, he says, There are some things in the Apostle Paul's letters that are hard to understand. The Apostle Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, closest to Jesus, comes out and, and he calls it. For what it is. He does also go on in that passage and talk about how other people will come to these 
words of the Apostle Paul, which show us God's grace and how they try and distort it and misinterpret it. But he makes the point, nonetheless, that there are some things in the Apostle Paul's letters that are hard to understand. And as your pastor, I have a confession to make. It's always fun when you get a confession from the pulpit. But I've spent several weeks trying to understand this passage. Many weeks of difficult study, much time in prayer, not infrequently emailing or reaching out to the elders to tell them to pray for me. I've hit a wall. My brain is fried. I'm struggling with this. And I can tell you firsthand, the Apostle Peter does not lie, especially when it comes to Ephesians 2, 15 and 14. And I would add, as we consider this, like all the hard parts of God's word, And like all the hard things that the Lord brings into our lives, which he does frequently, it is not by accident. That as we come to these words, we see that God didn't just throw something together and say, hey, here you go, figure it out. In fact, God intentionally put hard portions of his word that are difficult to understand in his scriptures. And guess what? He puts hard trials and challenges in our lives. And he puts difficult things in our lives intentionally and not by accident, which are difficult for us to understand. And it's not because he's mean, and it's not because he's unkind, and it's not because he's an absent father. Instead, he's trying to teach us something. and He's doing a work in our lives in which adversity very often is the sandpaper and the grit that he uses to address things in our lives that are hard in our lives. And I'm going to encourage you, as I've been encouraged, not to give up or look for easy answers for the things that are hard in God's word or for the things that are hard in your life and mine. Our predisposition a little bit is that when life is hard, we think something must be wrong. And our predisposition a little bit when things are hard in our lives is, well, maybe you did something wrong or maybe I did something wrong because if we did everything right, life would be easy peasy, lemon squeezy, right? I think we have that attitude sometimes in our jobs. We have that attitude in our education. And certainly many times that can transfer over to our relationships and our marriages and our parenting. And yes, indeed, it transfers over to our church. So that at the moment something is hard, we either look for an easy answer or a piece of quick comfort, and when we don't find it, we've moved on to somewhere else. And what's happened many times, brothers and sisters, is we've missed the very thing that God, our loving Father, desires to address in our lives. And so coming back to this text, I would tell you and exhort you, after spending many weeks struggling with it, to say it is worth the struggle. And it is worth waiting upon the Lord and it's worth trusting him. Because these two verses, Ephesians 2, 14 through 15, are God's workmanship. Every word in the original text. 
And they've been given by God to show us the beauty and the wonder of His love in Christ for sinners like you and I. They've been given to us to show us the beauty and the wonder of the cross. And if we bypass it and try and come up with an easy answer or a simplistic formula response, we don't miss out just on the beauty and wonder of his written word. We miss out on the beauty and wonder of his son, Jesus Christ. And that's the very thing God desires to get our attention for and to draw us close to. And so, rather than give you an easy answer, I'm going to ask you to wait. And our focus this morning is first to consider how does God call us to trust and to understand His written word, especially when it is hard. When we don't understand what it's saying, or maybe we do understand and we don't like what we're hearing. When it says things that make us feel uncomfortable, sometimes maybe even when it offends our pride, or even our understanding. How does God call us to receive it? How does God call us to handle it? And by extension, how does he call us to trust him and understand the difficult things that he brings into our lives? And what that means is we're going to have to wait for a few weeks before we tie this up completely as far as what these two verses mean and what's going on with this apparent contradiction. Because I want to walk us through step by step and lay a foundation so that we understand rightly, so that when we come to it, we can rightly divide it rather than hurrying through with assumptions that we know what we're talking about or we know what we're dealing with. What does that mean? It means, brothers and sisters, that it could be a little bit of a stretch for you. I confess. It's typically a stretch for you, I know. But it may be in particular a stretch. There may be portions that you're going to come through that you might not understand. Or you might scratch your head and say, I don't know what he's talking about. And brothers and sisters, that's okay. And it's okay if you come to me and say, Pastor Mark, I didn't understand. Or I don't understand what you're saying. Or can you repeat it again? It's okay. I'm inviting you to join my journey of struggle and pain and waiting upon the Lord. No, I'm inviting you as we go through this and say it's okay to say that what's most important here is that you see Christ and you trust him, that he is good and he loves you and he's doing a good work. Not necessarily that your intellect grasps everything and you can walk out the door and pass some test or quiz. Because at the end of the day, the good news of Jesus Christ is that God loves sinners and he does a work in our lives that defies our intellect and our understanding. But he comes in and does a radical work in our hearts and lives and he transforms us and he joins our lives with his son and he makes us like his son. And that good news is not just for the best and the brightest and those who go to seminary and those who write books. That's also for the folks who are in special needs, who have intellectual challenges, and who struggle in many aspects of their lives. Because the good news of the Bible is not the good news of how smart you are, or how much Bible knowledge you are familiar with. The good news of the Bible is the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that's worth celebrating. 
So as we come to this text, the first point that I want to bring to your attention is this. See if I'm... I need help. I need AV help. Okay, here we are. The first point is that we need God's help to rightly trust and understand His Word. We need God's help to rightly trust and understand His Word. At the end of last week's sermon, we walked through, in the beginning, we walked through the character of God. God is good. God does not lie. God is holy and He's set apart. He's eternally pure and perfect in His character, His love, and His words, and His deeds. But how do we deal with a God who sometimes it's hard to understand? How do we deal with a life that is sometimes hard to understand? How do we deal with portions of Scripture where we come and say, okay, this looks all wrong? Well, God has given us wisdom in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. In fact, from the passage that Ted read for us this morning. Trust in the Lord with what? Some of our heart? All of our heart, all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. It's interesting that this is set in the context, as those first passages in Proverbs, of a father speaking to his son, and speaking to him in love. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. There's a very important implication I want to draw here. You're familiar with these verses. You've heard it a million times. You've heard me say it a million times. The challenge is to live this out. We trust the Lord in some of our ways. We acknowledge Him in some of our ways. Sundays better than other days or ministry better than other days. But what about our parenting? What about our marriages? What about our jobs? What about those relationships that are difficult? What about the problems? What about the areas in our lives that are hard? Well, the implication here that God makes through the author of Proverbs is that we need God's help not for some of our ways, brothers and sisters. We need God's help for all our ways. Why? The point the author makes here is that we cannot lean and trust on our own understanding. In fact, the father says to his son here, he gives him a command, imperative, do not, do not lean on your own understanding. If you're going to lean on your own understanding, you are a what? Starts with an F and it ends with an L. You're a fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. God, I don't need you. My understanding is good enough. I'm smart enough. I've got it figured out. I have great experience here. I went to the master's seminary. I did biblical counseling. I got a medical degree. I know what I'm talking about. You fool. Right? 
talking about myself here, okay? So, but he's coming and saying, if you lean on your own understanding, you are a fool. And when God brings hard passages of Scripture, or when he brings trials into our lives that are hard, in mercy and kindness and grace, sometimes he brings those in to show us and to humble us And allow us to wrestle with things to see that sometimes we're not as smart or spiritual or Christ-like as we once thought we were. We soon discover sometimes that our maturity or our understanding is inadequate for the task. And as time goes on, we start to realize out of God's good grace that what he's doing us is he's calling us to him to look to him for the help and the wisdom and the discernment we need. This is not an isolated piece of wisdom in God's word. Jeremiah 17.9 Why is this command given us not to lean on our own understanding? Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceitful above all things. Desperately sick. Who can know it? Deceitful. That means your own understanding, apart from Christ, is fallen, is totally depraved, is twisted. It pursues a path to fill the evil desires of your heart. And it intentionally misleads you. And takes you astray. That's who we all are from the moment we're born all the way through our life until Christ starts to come in and starts to do a work in our lives, step by step, bit by bit. And guess what? Yes, we get saved. Yes, we get redeemed. But sanctification, brothers and sisters, is a process. Maturity is a process. And I don't know about you, but there's still plenty of areas in my life that the Lord Jesus Christ needs to come in and redeem. He has redeemed all of me, yes, but it's that idea of changing and transforming and progressive sanctification. And praise God, he doesn't do it all at once. Praise God, he is gentle and gracious and does it step by step. And he knows what I can bear and he knows what I can handle as far as trials and difficulties. And he shepherds me along and he cares for us in that way. And the father does so as a a good and beautiful father. But our own understanding, brothers and sisters, is depraved. Apart from Christ. It's misleading. And it makes our paths crooked every single time. Is that just me? Have you ever made a purchase? That you had second thoughts about after? Have you ever taken a job? And had second thoughts after? Have you ever said something? To your spouse? Or your children? That afterwards you thought, maybe wasn't such a good idea. In my life, Julie will tell you, one of the areas that desperately needs redemption is the area of interior design. I've made many decisions in stores where I say, honey, this is it. This is amazing. Order it, get it delivered, get it put up in the home. And you look at there and it's just an eyesore. Do the whole trek back, take everything back, wave the white flag so when 
Michael Fong comes and asks about the pulpit and what we should do and the size of the cross, I don't talk to me, talk to my wife. Totally depraved, totally bent and crooked. Whatever decision I'm going to make in interior design, you know it's going to come out wrong. Now, I, you know, look, that's, that's there. But you know, brothers and sisters, there's a lot of other areas of our lives besides interior design that show the testimony that our own understanding is going to lead us astray every step of the way. And when it comes to reading God's word, the same is true. We don't come in as Bible experts. That's why you meet people who know an awful lot about the Bible and their lives are a mess. You could read the Bible with your own understanding and you're going to end up with your own understanding and it isn't going to be good. And so the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.14, he says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them. doesn't say the natural man's able to understand some of it. He's able to get some of it right. Since the natural person, without Christ, our flesh, does not accept, it refuses, it rebels. It rejects the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness or folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So we see as we look at all these texts from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from Proverbs and Jeremiah all the way to the Apostle Paul. And we might even add Jesus throughout the Gospel of John repeatedly makes this point. Our difficulty in understanding the hard parts of Scripture and by extension our difficulty in understanding the hard parts of our lives or the story of our lives or even the story that we're part of. Brothers and sisters, it's not primarily an educational problem. It's not primarily an intellectual problem. It's not primarily a PowerPoint or communication problem. Those all may play a factor. But the heart of the issue, brothers and sisters, is a moral and spiritual problem. We have a hard time understanding hard things, whether it be the scriptures or our lives, because of our spiritual blindness or lack of spiritual maturity. As we read on in Proverbs, we're shown that it's the pride and sin in our lives that blinds us and makes everything dark or blurry and allows us to come to very, very wrong conclusions, whether it be God's word or our interior design. Well, what then is the help we need? Better education? More classes? Well, as we come back to Ephesians two fourteen through 16, these verses that we're looking at, and even Matthew The point that the Apostle Paul is making is we need help. And the help we need is not small, it's big. The help we need is we need the help of the cross. And we need the help of the blood of Christ. Because we need our sins forgiven. We need our sins removed. 
And we need a completely new nature and a new mind. And we need to be redeemed in every possible aspect of our lives. So that we can begin to lean on God's understanding of his word first and then the world around us. Our families, our children, all of those different things. Especially the hard parts. And as we continue to read in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul points out, even after we've been made alive in Christ, even after we've been redeemed and forgiven and brought into the household of God, we still need God's help to rightly understand his word. Ephesians 1. The Apostle Paul Praise for the saints in Ephesus. And the prayers in those first three chapters are pivotal. They're foundational to what this book is all about. And what exactly does the Apostle Paul pray for? For these saints in Ephesus who have been made alive in Christ. They're no longer dead in their trespasses and sins. The gospel is alive in their lives. Their reputation is going out. God's love, God's faith is doing a wonder in their community in spite of the persecution and adversity. And what exactly does the Apostle Paul pray for them in Ephesians 1.17? He prays for them for a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Ephesians 1.17. Revelation. Apocalypto. What has been hidden, what you couldn't see before, that your eyes would be open and you'd be able to see. Wisdom, that you'd no longer be a fool, but that you would trust in the Lord. And through his help, you'd be able to see the fullness of your salvation and the glory of Christ for what it is. And in verse 18, 118, he says, he prays for the spirit of wisdom and revelation for them, that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. That light would come in in the eyes of your heart and your spiritual center so that you would be able to see. Brothers and sisters, this isn't a one and done prayer. This is a prayer for the entirety of our lives until our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ comes. And when we see him face to face, we will be like him. But until that time, we need his help and we need a lot of it. Brothers and sisters, the problem with Christians, I'll say, in America, because that's where we are. I think we could say that there are many in this day and age. But brothers and sisters, there are many who are familiar with God's word. But there are few who are living God's word. We have to come and say, why is that? I mean, we see that everywhere. There are many who are familiar with the words of God. They can recite it. They can go to all the articles that you you want on any internet. They can hear however many sermons. And then their lives are a mess. And there's this disconnect between what we read in the pages of Scripture and we see in the life of Christ and in the lives of people who have an awful lot of Bible knowledge. In fact, I would say in America, we've never had more Bible knowledge than ever before. Well, what's the disconnect as we consider these verses and as we consider the testimony of Ephesians? We have to come and say, and we have to raise the question, 
Do they really understand God's word? We have to also ask by extension, have they really, or have we really, been to the cross? And is Christ truly the one who is helping us in every aspect of our lives? Especially rightly hearing and receiving and obeying the word of the Lord. Well, if there's not fruit in our lives, brothers and sisters, and if we're not progressively becoming more like Christ, especially in the big test, always is with trials and tribulations, even when the things are hard. And at the first sight that things are hard, we're running in a different direction or looking for an easy answer. We really have to ask ourselves, who is really helping us in our lives? Are we really looking to the cross on a daily basis for the help we need? When we're challenged in a relationship, are we looking to the cross, brothers and sisters, and are we going to the Lord for help? When was the last time that you have been to the cross on your knees begging for God's mercy and grace in Christ? To help us rightly receive and understand his word. And to help us rightly live through the trials that are coming our way. Usually things have to get pretty bad. And I say that of myself as well. Because that's the nature of our hearts. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has gone to his own way. I recall a pastor who I knew. From a seminary, I know, who did everything right as far as raising his children. Everything by the fundamentalist evangelical book. Homeschool, discipline with the rod, you name it, all the way through. Only to witness his son in full out rebellion at the time that he went to a Christian school. And at that time, he and his wife decided that they would fast and pray and go to the Lord. What was the difference? Not that that is for effect, but to the point where it was so blatant that everything that they had tried from the Christian rule book had failed. That the only recourse they had at that point was to be on their knees. Lord, we don't understand. Lord, we did everything right. Lord, we did everything that you asked us, and yet still our son is rebelling against you. And to come on their knees... And to fast and go without food and go and beg and be at the foot of the cross for the Lord's mercy and grace. And realizing and understanding that the best a Christian parent can do cannot save their child. Well, brothers and sisters, that's true for your job. And that's true for your relationships. And that's true for every aspect of your life. And if that's the case, brothers and sisters, we have to say, if we need God's help so much, why aren't we there? If we had it all together and we could understand everything, why did Jesus have to come and die on the cross and shed his blood for your sins and mine? The good news of Jesus Christ is that God has given us the help we need to deal with a fallen and sinful world, to deal with fallen and sinful hearts, and to deal with fallen and sinful understanding. And at times where we don't begin to understand That's okay, brothers and sisters, because we have a Father who loves us and we can go to Him. 
And we can ask for his help and we can go to the foot of the cross and we can wait for him and we can wrestle like Job did because we know that our Redeemer lives. And brothers and sisters, this is just as true for God's written word as it is for the rest of our lives because the two are connected. We can trust God and we need his help, especially to understand his word, because it is his word and not ours. That brings us to our next point. I think. As you can see, I need all the help I can get this morning. God's written word, the Bible, is God's holy workmanship. God's written word, the Bible, is God's holy workmanship. Brothers and sisters, we come to God's word all too often as if it's an academic textbook. I've read a lot, I'm familiar, I know. I've been at Lighthouse Bible Church for however long. I did FOF. I did, sat through the biblical counseling courses. I know this. But brothers and sisters, that's not the blood of Christ. That's not the cross. And what we're dealing with here is not a syllabus or a university textbook, we're dealing with the written word of God, which is his workmanship, and it's holy, which means it is perfect, and it is pure, and it is beautiful, and it is wonderful, infinite in its love, and it's way above your pay grade and mine. The question then is frequently asked as we come to the Bible and understanding it rightly, especially when it comes to the hard parts. What we frequently hear is, okay, well, God is holy, God is perfect. The words he speaks and writes, those are holy and perfect. But what about the 66 books that make up the Bible, that make up the scriptures? Are these not the written words of imperfect and sinful men, just like you and I? And therefore, you know, Pastor Mark, you're not perfect. No, I'm not. The elders aren't perfect. No, they're not. Okay, so that means, you know, it's all a mess, right? How do we distinguish what's right and what's wrong? And the way many deal with it, if you look at the Jesus Seminar or Thomas Jefferson or many of the academics, is the statement of, well, we've got to go through and figure out what really in this text is correct and where the errors are. And we'll just separate those and we'll get rid of the errors or the inconsistencies or the awkward parts and we'll keep the good parts and that'll be our book for the rest of our lives. And if you've seen Thomas Jefferson's Bible, it was pretty thin. And it's interesting to consider Islam's criticism of the Bible and to see that it is not that much different from the liberal critics. Because Islam's statement is that the Bible is corrupted. That once upon a time, God did speak the truth to Abraham, but over time it became corrupted and the apostles were deceived. And that's why the Bible, you know, there were kernels of truth there in the beginning. And so you have to be able to weed through that book as a Muslim and figure out what's right and what's wrong. And what's interesting is they're the mirror image of their liberal counterparts in academia. But as we come to God's word, God shows us very explicitly, no, this is not the case. He has loved us through his word. He speaks the truth in love. And that extends to his written word. His written word, the Bible, from beginning to end is his holy workmanship. It is a love letter from God, brothers and sisters, with a beginning and end. 
And I'm going to take a few moments to walk you through from the Old Testament to the New Testament what God says about his word and how he has given us not just his spoken word, but the written word from which we get our Bibles. Is it trustworthy? If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Deuteronomy 18, 15. Now, this is going to be a little bit of a stretch. Be forewarned. It's not going to be easy. Put your seatbelts on. Okay? We're going to go from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Your brain will be fried, but someday later, when the Holy Spirit comes and gives you what you need and gives me what I need, you'll thank me later. Deuteronomy 18, Moses, the Lord God's prophet, is preparing for his death. And he's preparing the people of Israel for a time and season when he will no longer be with them. And God, through the Holy Spirit, is working through him. And so what does it say? Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. Now, when you get to the New Testament, you see he's talking about Jesus here. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Verse 18. Drop down if you would. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name. I myself will require it of him. And here God lays the foundation and shows and demonstrates to the people how he's worked through Moses, but how he's going to work in the prophets who are going to come. And how he's going to communicate his holy and perfect word to his people. He's going to use it. For a season through imperfect men who will foreshadow the coming of the prophet, Jesus Christ. He's going to put his words in the mouths of his prophets. He's going to choose and he's going to raise up prophets. And he's going to hold the people accountable for how they receive the words that are spoken by his chosen prophets or apostles. If you deal with the word of this prophet or apostle, when he speaks in my name, thus saith the Lord. Oh, it's just a man. He's imperfect. Well, yes, he is. But when he speaks on behalf of the Lord and he speaks the words that I put in his mouth and you receive it as anything less than my holy and perfect word, I am going to hold you accountable. You have to receive it. As the word of God himself that has come from the mouth of God himself. Then as we walk through the Old Testament and throughout the rest of God's word. God's prophets are not just commanded to speak the words God has placed in their mouths. They're also commanded to guess what? To write them down. And to preserve them as a testament for the generation to come. And to make copies of them. So when we look back before Deuteronomy in Exodus 34, 27, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, write these words. God gives Moses a commandment to write down the words that he's given and that he's spoken. And then at the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 31, 9, 
It says, Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. We see that the words that have been written down and passed from generation to generation in the people of the Lord, the written words, they have been given, they are the workmanship of God. And they're to be obeyed as God's holy workmanship. Words that have come from the mouth of God. Now, turn with me if you would to Jeremiah chapter 1. Well, is that just Moses? Well, no, this is how God works for the entirety of his written word. Jeremiah 1, verse 4, and we'll read from verse 4 through 9. Now the word of the Lord came to me, this is Jeremiah, saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Jeremiah loved you, and I knew all about you before I myself knit you together in your mother's womb. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I made you holy. I set you apart. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Verse 6, And I said, Ah, Lord, God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. Jeremiah is coming to the Lord, and he's saying, Look, you want me to be your spokesperson. You want me to speak your word. You want me to be your prophet. But I'm young. I'm inexperienced. I'm going to drop the ball. I'm going to blow it. I have every human reason to be flawed. I won't understand it. What does the Lord say to him in response? Verse 7. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. I am watching over my word to perform it. So we see this whole argument. Well, you know, they're flawed guys, so on and so forth. And very clearly from Moses to Jeremiah, the Lord is showing every aspect of Jeremiah's life. Loved by God. Set apart from by God. Prepared by God. For the purpose of being the spokesperson and prophet of the Lord. Loved, chosen, created, sanctified, set apart, made holy. Now isn't it interesting as we come to Ephesians 2 and God talks to these saints in Ephesus and talks about how the Lord has saved them and brought them out of sin and darkness and says, for by grace you've been saved. How he says to them in Ephesians 2, 10, for we are his, what? Workmanship. Created by God for his good works, which he prepared for you beforehand, that you would walk in them. This beautiful idea that who the Lord saves, his children, his people, he remakes them in the image of God and he addresses the sin in their lives so that they can be useful and holy and set apart for him and so that they can live his word and share his word with others. Brothers and sisters, God isn't saving you to give you a better life so you can come here every Sunday morning and see your friends. 
He's sanctifying you and doing a work in your life and bringing you to the cross and putting hard things in your life to draw you to the cross and to draw you to Christ and to mature you and make you more Christ-like so you can share his love with others, so you can be a spokesperson for the Lord. No, you're not a prophet. No, you're not an apostle. He's clearly in his word. Set aside specific men for that purpose. But it's the model and example of where the Lord is taking us, brothers and sisters. From the mouth of God to the pen of the prophet, every last word in the original autograph and text written by God's prophets are a holy work of God, as are the lives that he used to prepare to give us what we have in our hands and what's referred to as the Bible. As we come to the New Testament, we see Jesus shows us this is the same process that happened in the Apostle Paul's life. Acts 9.15. Christ refers to the Apostle Paul. He says, he is a chosen instrument of mine. And when Jesus speaks of the Apostle Paul as being his chosen instrument, he's using technical language. Chosen, set apart, predestined, adopted, instrument, chosen instrument. It's a reference or an illustration in the Old Testament Of the vessels that were set apart and used in the tabernacle. Where God went and spoke to Moses and gave him very specific specifications. For all the vessels and instruments that were to be used in the worship of God. Jesus is saying this is what the Apostle Paul is. And he's trying to share it with the disciple who's got a minister to this man says i don't want to touch this guy with a 10-foot pole he's a horrible person and the lord comes and says whoa hang on he is but i've died for him my blood has been shed for him he is my chosen instrument in my time and in my way he will bear my word as we come to romans 15 15 the apostle paul Writes, he says, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Because of the grace given me by God. And the Apostle Paul draws a connection between what he has written in his epistles and the grace of God that was given to him. And in 1 Corinthians 14.37, as the Apostle Paul wrestles with a church and a community who disrespect him and disregard him and feel that he doesn't speak cleverly enough and he's not sophisticated enough and they're giving more respect to the false apostles. He writes in 1 Corinthians 14.37, he says, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. So when we come to the Apostle Paul's epistles in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is making a point. I'm no different than Jeremiah. I'm no different than Moses. The words that I'm writing to you are not my words. They're the words of Christ himself. These are the epistles that he's writing in Greek to these different churches. Well, Brothers and sisters, that's a bold claim. The Apostle Paul is either a complete liar or he's an apostle. And the words that he's written from the mouth of God to the paper that it's written on in the original autographs are entirely 
word for word, the holy workmanship of God. And as God says to Jeremiah, I am watching over my word and I will do it or perform it. Which means that God cares about every aspect and every letter and every word. He's involved. He's not absent. The Apostle Peter summarizes this divine process of how we've received the written word of God. In 2 Peter 1.19 he writes, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, the graphe, what's written, comes from someone's own interpretation. He uses a word, epilusis, that it's the work of men, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, if what they're saying is true, you make that call. When you come to the word of the Lord, you're coming face to face with words that come from his mouth. You're coming face to face with the holiness of God. We have to receive it as the word of God and we are accountable to it as if he was right here speaking with an audible voice. But instead for our benefit so that we can go back over it and over it again, he has given us as a gift his written word so that we might learn and know how to trust Him and love Him in the way in which is fitting for the King. That's no joke, brothers and sisters. And so if we come to a passage and we start to see and it says, well, it seems like there's a contradiction or it seem, seems like there's a mistake. We have to come first and say, okay, what about my heart? What about my understanding? And when we see things happen in other people's lives that seem hard and difficult and don't make sense, brothers and sisters, before we're quick to make judgments, we need to step back and say, okay, what does God's written word have to say? Because he's given it to us to be his standard for knowing and understanding and living this new life to the fullest. Well, to summarize what Peter's saying and to summarize all of what's being said here, this is what's referred to as the doctrine of plenary inspiration. The doctrine of plenary inspiration. It means every word, plenary, every word comes from the mouth of God. In our 66 books of the Bible, in the original autographs written in Hebrew and Greek that were written, by those men who were set apart as prophets and apostles. And if you go to our doctrinal statement online, you will see this written out. And essentially, this is where, and these are the scriptures where it's come from. And I'll read you an abbreviated portion. It says, our doctrinal statement on the Holy Scriptures says, we teach that the Bible is God's written revelation to man, given to us by the Holy Spirit. We teach that the Word of God is 
verbally inspired, meaning breathed out by the mouth of God. In every word, absolutely inerrant in the original documents, infallible, and God-breathed. We teach that God spoke his written word by a process of dual authorship. The Holy Spirit so superintended the human authors that through their individual personalities and different styles of writing, they composed and recorded God's word to man without error in the whole or in the part. In a nutshell, the written word of God is God's holy workmanship. And God doesn't mess around and God doesn't make mistakes. And if we're to understand it rightly, we have to receive his written word in its entirety. Not just, oh, I'll do this section here because this, this makes sense to me. But this other stuff over here, in its entirety, every word in whole and in part, breathed out by the mouth of God, the holy workmanship of God given to us so that we might know his love to the fullest and so that we might trust in a God who is holy and who is good. Where does that leave us? As we come to Matthew 5.17, I hope, let's see if you can help me AV team, to get to my next slide. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, thank you, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. This is our first passage and the ones that we compare between the two. And I'll open this section, but I won't go in depth in it. You'll be relieved, okay? I'll tie this up. The points I've wanted to make this morning have been made. We need God's help to understand his word, and we need to understand God's written word as his holy workmanship. But as we come to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he's dealing with critics who are coming and saying, you're trying to destroy or abolish or do away with the Old Testament. We hear that frequently, and we see that even where people might even use the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 to say, okay, Christ abolished the law, gone, done. We don't need the Old Testament. We can do whatever we want. We live by love, okay? We don't need God's word. We don't need his rules. All of those things, that's over and done with. Christ is fulfilled that we move on. Well, Jesus addresses that directly here. Do not think that I have come to abolish or to do away or to destroy the law or the prophets. The law and the prophets is a technical term for the written part of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, what is written? The scriptures. Summary sometimes referred to as the law and prophets, sometimes referred to as the law and the prophets and the Psalms. Then he says it twice, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I want you to notice this. The point that Jesus makes here, before and after this pivotal statement, 
where he says, and he explains, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not the tiniest letter will pass from the law, the written word of God, until all is accomplished. He's coming and making the point that even the letters, brothers and sisters, God cares about, and they're not there by accident. And their order and place in God's words are significant. He's coming and saying that God's word, the written word in the Old Testament, is incorruptible and without error and perfect and infallible because it comes from the mouth of God. But he makes an interesting point in between. He points out to them that they cannot understand or rightly receive the written word of God, which God cares about, if they do not understand who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And this brings us to our concluding point for this morning. God's written word, the Bible, is entirely God's holy workmanship that points us to Christ. And I'm going to leave it here at this one point as far as our exegesis. Jesus is showing them You cannot understand me if you don't understand God's written word. And you can't understand God's written word if you do not understand me. Why is that the case? That the entirety of scripture, the focal point is Jesus Christ. It leads up to Christ and everything that comes after in the New Testament is built upon Christ and the cross. He's the focal point. He's the key. And this is what the Apostle Paul learned firsthand. He knew the scriptures. He cared about every jot and iota. But he was completely wrong because he did not know Christ. Because he did not have the help that God had given to understand his word and to know his love. Without Christ, we cannot understand rightly or receive God's written word. Without God's written word, we cannot understand rightly and receive our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the testimony through all the Gospels. Why is that the case? Because he is, brothers and sisters, the living word of God. Christ himself is the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And he is the word of God. He is God's revelation in its fullness. The full place where we see and receive and experience and know the glory and goodness of God. And the cross was the testimony that that is who he is. And the cross is the testimony that that is not who we are. And that we can't understand or appreciate the glory and goodness of Christ or his written word because of our sin. That's why God sent him as a sacrifice in our place. Next time we gather, Lord willing, we will try and show you the connection between the cross and the written law of God and why there is not a contradiction here. But by way of application, and I know I've left questions there and I apologize for that and I know there are things that might be hard to understand and I apologize for that and you will have to wait in the Lord just as I I have to wait in the Lord. But I want to draw it down to one point here, brothers and sisters. Our struggles with the written word of God 
are connected with our relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They're tied to our relationship with the cross. And there are plenty of seminary professors who are experts in Bible knowledge and are fools and come to wrong conclusions and have terrible and messed up lives with no fruit because they have no relationship with Christ and they have no relationship with his cross. Brothers and sisters, to rightly receive God's written word, we need to rightly receive Christ for who he is. We need by faith to repent of our sins and place our trust in him, not in some of our ways, but all of our ways, our parenting, our work, our relationships, our church. And if that is not there and you are a child of God, the Lord will bring hardship, difficulty, and adversity into your life out of love for you, to draw you close, to get your attention, to say, I love you. Will you think about me? Will you consider me? Will you look to me and my written word? And to my son and to his cross to find the answers to set your paths straight. So the question for each one of us this morning is, do you know him? Is he king of your life? Are the problems that you experience in understanding the trials in your life or the trials in God's word, is that a reflection of your intellect or is it because Christ is not present? Because, brothers and sisters, here's the other side. We can't come to God's word and we can't come and hear God's word on a Sunday and expect to understand what God is trying to say to us when our hearts are filled with so many other things. I know this firsthand. I worked on call as a physician an hour before the church services, dealing with a drug addict, dealing with someone with cardiac arrest and coming in and sitting in the service with Dr. MacArthur, one of the best preachers the world has ever seen and having a hard time and concentrating and walking out feeling I didn't learn anything. Why? My heart is filled with my job and all these other things. And whether it's pornography or your work or your conflicts or all those other things, brothers and sisters, as we come to God's word, Our hearts filled with Christ, have we been to the cross? Have we recognized we're sinners and we need his help so desperately in every aspect of our lives? Brothers and sisters, if we haven't, then we shouldn't be surprised if there are things that we don't understand or rightly receive or it falls on deaf ears. Will your hearts, brothers and sisters, receive the word of God with a good and honest heart or are they filled with stones or the thorns of the deceitfulness of riches, the worries of the world, and the cares for other things, so that there is no life. Christ calls you to look to him for the help we need to rightly understand the hard things in his word and the hard things in our lives. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, what a savior you are. You have given your life so that the entirety of our lives would not lean on our own understanding, but instead find its rest in you. Forgive us, save us, transform us, and enable us by faith to be filled so much with you, Lord Jesus. The beauty and wonder of your cross, an appreciation of the greatness of your love for us, reveal to us, Lord Jesus, what we cannot see on our own, Remove from us the blindness of our sin and pride and intellect, Lord, 
so that we might enjoy you to the fullest and share you with others so that we might receive rightly your word in our lives and your plan for our lives. In your name we pray, amen.